Heidi White. And I'm Sean Townsend. And this is Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing a canticle for Leibowitz. And this is chapter 16 through 24. Sean, how are you? I am very well. Heidi, how are you? I'm doing fine. Yep, that's really good news. I'm glad. Is there an <laughs> absence on today's show of any kind? I feel it. I feel it. Uh, it's hard to put my finger on, but I do sense it. Yeah. Well, maybe yeah. someone can help us out. Just something Just something feels like it's not. Something feels missing, you know? Yeah. yeah. David, what do you think? Oh, oh that's what it, that is what, what it, is. it is. Thank you, Sean. You, <laughs> man, diagnostician, like Dr. House, MD. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I do have uh, my David bookmark, though, always close at hand. You can't oh. see this if you're just listening to the audio, but I mean, that's all you get. Right. You should see yeah. a video of these things. It it would blow your mind. Right. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you could just see facial expressions and yeah. people walking around in the background in my house. <laughs> Sean is a responsible adult, so he has like an office. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Cubby. Yeah. Well, here we are to talk about a canticle for Leibowitz. David is... Uh, I don't know. What's our euphemism for this week? Indisposed. I can't remember what we said about you last week. Well, yeah. Last week I was caring for my daughter on death's door and you guys were kind enough to cover for me. And Lucy is much better. I don't know if you said on the podcast that Lucy was really, really sick. I think we were a little bit vague, but yes, uh, I'm glad to hear she's. Yeah, she's on the mend. Um, Excellent. Yeah, she had this like crazy thing, though, that I'd never heard of before. Uh, It's called mesenteric lymphadenitis uh mesenteric lymphadenitis right so what that is is um swollen lymph nodes in her abdomen from a pretty severe viral infection she just had like a stomach bug and it lasts a really long time and then her yeah and then her uh this like her abdomen just got full of these of swollen lymph nodes and so it took her like almost three weeks to recover and she's very sick and I was a little bit worried about her and we were in the ER getting fluids and all that stuff but she has recovered so that's great I know yes and it made me which this is my transition into the I'm giving you like a you know (laughs) a warning preliminary it's uh, coming incoming transition to the book it made me but this is sincere it made me very thankful for modern medicine Yes. Very thankful Um, because she was never in any danger except for dehydration. She's severely dehydrated. And so I was grateful to be able to take her into the ER and they gave her several bags of fluid and fluids and she recovered much better after that, uh, which was not an option for people who are either a long, long time ago or way in the future after the zombie apocalypse and the collapse (laughs) of our civilization, which will be restored by bookleggers. Speaking of. Yes. Yes. So meanwhile, speaking of over on a canticle for Leibowitz, we are in the heart of the book. Yeah. The, the, the middle section. uh, And in this particular section where, you know, far removed from the first story or the first section of the book, first part of the book, which did you talk last week about how um, the kind of the three-part structure? We did a bit. Yeah, we tried. uh, We looked forward a little bit to the third uh, section, but not a whole lot. Okay. But yes, acknowledging that it's the three-part structure that at least in some sense, they were written independently of each other. Though they were, he always sort of composed them as a, as a unit and imagined them fitting together. Right, right. Uh, So we're in the middle section here. So we're past the dark ages, so to speak, of the uh, dystopian world. Um, And so how would you describe this era um, of time here? Well, the, the characters frequently allude to or overtly refer to the the hope or expectation of a coming renaissance. And so I think that's a pretty easy correlation. Uh, we are coming out of, quote unquote, the Dark Ages. Mm. Uh, although I really like that it, 
at a couple of points in this section, uh, Miller really kind of goes to bat for the our medieval monks uh, in insisting that they were not rubes. <laughs> uh, they're not, and these monks are also not Philistines. They don't understand theoretical physics, or, you know, or astrophysics, or uh, rocket science, maybe. But they they have a very firm grasp on the the ideas and the even the the realms of knowledge and categories of knowledge that they have access to, mm. uh, and the idea that the uh, preservers of knowledge. Only after they're done performing this essential task, become uh, start to be blamed for the darkness that the world emerged out of, uh, and blamed by people who are only capable of looking down upon them because of the intellectual inheritance that the monks have preserved for them. Uh, So I thought Miller Miller did a good did the monks a solid (laughs) in in that regard. Uh, yeah, so in this section, uh, in this era within the novel, uh, I think we're at a turning point, a kind mm-hmm. of technological watershed moment where uh, finally the things that the uh, Leibowitzian order has been preserving uh, are able to be interpreted and uh, compounded upon uh, or or even improved upon or synthesized into new discoveries. Mm-hmm. It's a, so there's a, there's the promise of uh, to harken back to the title of part two, it was a promise of enlightenment. Right. Yes, very much so. Uh, yeah. And and even that idea of enlightenment is really captured in the arc light that yeah. the monks make. And I wanted to spend some time talking about that, but let's let's put that off a little bit um, because I want to talk for a bit about Thon, about Thon Tadeo. Yeah. Um, or Tadio. I don't know how we're saying it. You tell me. I, I've been saying Tadio. Okay. We're going to do that. We're not told. This is not an obvious one. So we get to pick, right? That's right. Uh, it's a made up to, name. <laughs> I've listened to the audio book before, but it's been a long time. So I don't know what the reader said either. All right. So Thon uh, Tadio, he's um, an ambiguous, maybe even ambivalent figure in this section. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah. I think, especially at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we when we first encounter him, yeah. So, what are his uh, what are his virtues and what are his vices and what is it that he represents in the story? Wow, we went all in. I know because he's uh, so because and, and the reason I'm asking it that way and pick and choose what you want to answer and I'll give my thoughts yeah. too uh, yeah. is because he is representative of this watershed moment in history. Um, yes, he and he brings to light that one remarkable mind can be transformative uh, and is presented as such within the story. There's nobody who doubts his genius uh, and his potential to impact, to impact history and to know that what, what comes before him, he's the meeting point uh, in, in a major historical moment. And he's very aware of that too. Uh, and I think one thing that stood out to me in his character is, is in a culture in which, like in our culture, there's not only are there brilliant people everywhere, <laughs> but there's, there's this... Um, we live in a culture that so values that, like there's an overabundance of opportunity to create so much so that the great minds are lost for a very different reason, right? right. Um, because we have so much opportunity, we have so much cultural value in progress, uh, but that wasn't the case. We see that very clearly in this book. Um, there's this dearth <laughs> um, and emptiness uh, and... Um, and and he comes and fills that, and right. and so I'm I'm very interested in what what it is that motivates him, what he does that's good, and the potential for for evil that comes also through him and maybe even in him. Yeah, and, and I think that sometimes it's a really fine line between his virtues and vices, right? <laughs> but one of his virtues seems to be uh, that he recognizes what you've just described. Uh, he, he's, he's got a, a, a bit of an ego problem, or right, he has some pride that is wounded at moments. Uh, but 
it comes from having a, a fairly correct estimation of his brilliance and his importance in the historical moment. Uh, and he he has embraced that and leaned into it. And right? he is trying to do the work uh, that he believes himself capable of or uniquely capable of. So he has kind of let that vocation and that mantle settle upon him. And he's trying to bear up under it in, in as noble a way as possible. He does seem to care about I don't want to use truth in the capital T kind of way, but he is an honest, he has an honest and earnest spirit of inquiry. Mm -hmm. uh, so he is a good scientist in that regard. Right. Uh, well, he but seems he, to care about yeah, knowledge for its own yes. sake. Like truly yes. love knowledge for its own sake. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to falsehood. But I, I've already mentioned some of his vices in, <laughs> in the process of describing that virtue. Uh, and that he is, um, well, and maybe one of his other vices is that he is dispassionate. Hmm. Ooh, uh, what we do you see, mean by that? We, well, when we first meet him, he is not, uh, he's not enamored of his political sway. Hmm. Uh, so he has, he has a kind of privileged position um, in the halls of power. And that's not the thing about himself that he um, is impressed by or cares a lot about. Uh, and so he's trying to maneuver within the political landscape, but he's not really trying to play the political game. Uh, it really is knowledge and truth that he's concerned with. Hmm. Uh, what? But, you... Oh, go ahead. Continue. Oh, well, but he is, he is prideful and uh, he doesn't, uh, the, the abbot, I think kind of brings him, takes him to task effectively uh, in the end, um, sort of tentatively at first and then effectively in the end, uh, for not really having an ethical compass that's guiding his work. Uh, and he doesn't really ask or uh, want to deal head on with questions of uh, who will use the power that he discovers and creates and and to what ends. Right. What I liked his character, not because I liked him necessarily. I, um, that wasn't it. It was more that I liked the character because I, I feel like Walter Miller and in, in the hands of a lesser novelist, a character mm -hmm. like that could have become you know, like the big, bad, power hungry technocrat. Right. Yeah. He could be um, a caricature or, uh, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. and it, didn't seem to me that he was motivated by power or money, like one of those low hanging fruits, like I said. Um, I, but there is a profound divide between the kind of knowledge that he is seeking and the kind of and and the perspective of the monks, right? Uh, who are protecting um, their legacy. Um, so what what is that divide? What's the difference between them? Uh, I mean, I think it is sort of a um, brain soul kind of <laughs> divide, at right. least in part. There's that scene where the uh, Miller has Don Taddeo and uh, the abbot Don Paolo like shouting over each other, shouting across each other. And so you get a line from each uh, inter interspersed. And uh, Don Paolo is just quoting. Genesis. Uh, and Dontadio rebukes him for trying to bring this, you know, non, non serious, non uh, you know, academically reliable historical account into their conversation. And Don Paolo says, No, you, you missed the point. I, I'm not offering this as a kind of empirical proof of a historical event, whatever you might think about that. It's it's an ethical warning. I this the, I was quoting to you the passage about the nature of temptation and what man is tempted to and what the uh, consequences of succumbing to that temptation are. Uh, so Don Taddeo can't really see, can't understand the Bible as having that kind of function, uh, as giving direction to the soul. He assumes that if it's brought into the conversation, it's as a an inferior 
historical document mm. uh, because that's the only sort of category he has to fit things into. He has uh, closed off any kind of ethical category. Uh, but I like the character too uh, because I think he's imminently unlikable when you first meet him mm-hmm. uh, and then becomes more sympathetic as you see him uh, begin to allow the conflict to to hold his attention mm-hmm. uh, by the time he departs from the monastery. And he's not, he's not just uh, forcing it out of his mind. And he does act with principle in the way that he uh, at least uh, parts, parts, parts ways with the monks and uh, hands over the technical drawings of their fortifications and those sorts of things. Right. I, I was, um, I mean, everybody knows I love monasteries and I mean, like, I like would be one of these, like that. I, I love what they're doing. I believe in yeah. what they're doing. And like, I almost think there's, it's like the highest thing you can do. But then as we were, as I was reading the book and there's the conversations that Thon has about what, like, why are you guys even holding this knowledge if you're never going to release it, if you're never going to do anything with it, right? And he doesn't mean by that, this is why I liked him, liked his character, there, he doesn't mean so that you can have money and power and amass this massive amount of, of, um, of self-aggrandizing artifacts from it, right? He's, he really just means, I want to know. Right. And, and we are, I think, aware of his vices as you're bringing up, but as I, I thought that was a really good question. And, and I started thinking about that for myself, if I were a keeper of knowledge um, in a dark age, and then there came a point that there was a return to to a love of knowledge and a desire to build something from it. Yeah. I think I would be protective of it. And then I don't sure I would be able to answer why I think, and, and I think the closest thing we can come to that right now in our culture is AI, right. Mm -hmm. That, that there's, there is, you know, there, there is a new frontier of technology um, and knowledge before us, something that has never been done before. And there's been so many of those things in our in 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 our lifetime, which is really bizarre when you think about it. Yeah, right. But right now with AI, I I've, I'm so I'm I'm more than wary of it. I'm like staunchly opposed to it, um, yeah. and because. I have this very strong sense, and maybe it'll relate to this, and some of our listeners will. I'm not afraid of what it will do. Like, I'm not afraid that AI is going to, like, you know, become sentient and <laughs> and take over the world. I'm not. I know some people are. I'm not. But I am afraid of what we will do with it to others. Yeah, right. Like, and because I do not think that humanity has ever been virtuous enough uh, to use power, to wield power rightly. Yeah. But then I have to think to myself, well, then why does it matter if what we're preserving at all? If I'm going to be so protective of it, I don't want anybody to have it. Then why do why why am I like the keeper of this monastery and I have everything in these like lead lined, <laughs> you know, I'd, and and that way I think Dom Paolo's more virtuous than I because I would have probably resisted. I I'd be like an arm brewster. That's me. <laughs> well, Lord, I, have mercy on me. <laughs> but I started thinking about that. Why preserve knowledge if, or it, why would I want to be a booklegger if the thing that I am afraid of is the wrongful wielding of power and knowledge? Yeah. Uh, David and I just sort of anticipated this question last week. So I'm glad that it, it has come up so naturally. Because uh, I think that's, I think that emerges as a really big question in this section uh, and will only continue to be important going on. And that Dom Paolo even shows signs wavering on that himself uh, or whether, whether or not he feels certain that he has an answer or is a satisfying answer. Yeah. But, and yeah, and partly because of uh, what they knew 
the these monks in this order knew from the beginning what their knowledge had done, right? even if they didn't comprehend the content of what they were preserving, they knew what its effects had been before, uh, and yet they preserved it for the uh, for the the man who would come in the future and know what to do with it. Uh, and I think maybe that's one of the reasons that Don Paolo continues to insist upon the fact that, yes, they made it available, but it was available here in the monastery. Yes. And I think there's there's something important about having to come to that particular source to get it. You have to wrestle with what the monastic tradition represents as a kind of counter to the purely material calculus that that Fontadio is is operating on, right? You have to come and endure the ethical questions of the monks uh, before you can get the the stuff that you want, the things that you want, right? And and it made me think too, actually, about uh, just the task of teaching. I was thinking more and more through this read that, um, in some ways, every time we train up a student, especially as a as classical teachers who are more more so custodians of you know the the traditions and and um inheritance of the west than say you know, like uh textbook peddlers or whatever uh or or trend peddlers that uh every time we train up a student we're we're sort of doing this right we're we have preserved a thing for people who don't know what it is and don't have the means of comprehending it but then we slowly train them into that comprehension and then we let them go uh, and uh, with a little bit of trepidation about how they will use what we have given them. <laughs> at least, at least I do. I, I get a little nervous sometimes. I, uh, we have to, we, you know, we graduate students who have free will and have been given a, a lot of valuable things uh, and a lot of, uh, and the means of mm -hmm. some power by us and then uh, leave them to their own devices and sort of pray that, that we've set them on in, in good stead. And uh, I think that's a kind of continual, a, a tiny uh, metaphor for uh, what the, the Leibowitzians are doing here. So I, I get it. I, I understand the insecurity or the, the anxiety uh, there of, uh, of that task. Right. Well, and along with that is the preservation of that knowledge, to your point, within an existing tradition that understands the importance of that knowledge, but understands that that knowledge must be in submission to, to something greater than itself. And I think that's the thing that we see in this section that Thontadio is missing, right? He, he sees his own brilliant mind, which is undeniable, uh, and believes that because he has such a prodigious mind and such prodigious ability and a capacity to understand yeah. and to synthesize this information um, and a genuine love for the knowledge itself, that he 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 thinks he is a um a fitting inheritor of it. Whereas the monastic tradition has its own rules that 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 right. supersede any individual soul or person, right? Um, and and that's something that Thontadio cannot understand. And that is why Dom Paolo has the freedom and the responsibility uh, to share that knowledge and not sit on it the way Armbruster does or where I might be tempted to. Um, yeah. Because it is a legacy that belongs to everybody. Like that is... Uh, that is an inheritance of the world. Um, but what the monastic tradition does is says, okay, so it is an inheritance of the world, but it is not isolated from something bigger than itself, from a guiding set of ethics um, and a spiritual framework uh, that can protect and preserve it for what is good, not just yeah. for what people can do. And so with Tham Tadio, I see in him like a very enlightenment mind, as you brought up, um, when in which the the individual self is becomes the keeper 
of the tradition rather than an existing community that's beyond the self. And somebody like Don Taddeo or any of those enlightenment thinkers, if they could, of the past, um, if they could see what has been done with their legacy, I think they many of them would be appalled. I think of Descartes, yeah. right? If Descartes could yeah. see what the Cartesian way of thinking has led to in modernity, I think he right. would repent in sackcloth and ashes. <laughs> I believe he would because he was a Christian, but yeah. he he could not control. Uh, once you give a legacy of knowledge to an individual instead of a community, you cannot control what that individual does with it. Yeah. Uh, and that is the risk that you take in moving from a communal society to an individual one. And that's happened in history. And I think we see, even though the gap, we don't we don't actually see the specifics of that in the novel. Um, there's a big jump between section two and section three. And right. we don't, at least I don't, I haven't read far enough to know um, if we get any glimpse into those intervening years. Um, but I, I think even somebody like Thon Tadio would be would be moved, right? To see, oh, this became bigger than me. Yeah. Uh, Heidi, who does Thon Taddeo remind you of uh, as far as yeah, like modern, a historical uh, figure. modern historical figures? I thought maybe he was going to, there was going to be, a, um, it was going to feel like Galileo, right? Oh, uh, yeah. And the, and the church is sort of, a, yeah. you know, shouting him down and trying to yeah right yeah. but actually the church as represented by don paulo certainly is like you can i mean come over like, and see it, what we go got for right it, yeah and we'll even let you take away the fortification the drawings of the fortifications of our monastery yeah um that was very beautiful um that was a very 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 beautiful part very moving Mm-hmm. Um, and I would not have been virtuous enough for that, which is why I'm not <laughs> an abbess of a monastery. Um, pray for me. Um, but I did think of I did think of Descartes or Newton. How about you? I was I was trying to do you know give you the uh, <laughs> I can't even think I can't even think of the sports ball term now uh, because full disclosure, Heidi and I both agreed off the air that Fontaine reminded us a lot of Oppenheimer. Yep. And you know, maybe especially because you know he was such a hot ticket recently, yep. old, old old Oppenheimer. Uh, but I think if uh, for any listeners who have who saw the the, the recent Oppenheimer film, uh, I think the uh, the unchecked quest for knowledge and breakthrough and uh, and ultimately power, uh, and then the. Uh, at least in in the frame of of a three hour movie, the immediate regret uh, as soon as to your point, as soon as he sees what is done and what is capable of being done with his creation is is really poignant. And at several points, characters seem to be um, not just Dom Paolo, uh, a couple of other mon- monks, uh, the uh, uh, brother Galt. Right. I think at one point uh, challenges Fontadio uh, with this idea of not having asked any kind of uh, ethical question about his his quest. Uh, in the same way that uh, uh, he even he even says himself that he can't be too politically scrupulous because he has to he he has to support the political entity that will make his uh, research possible. Right. And uh, I think that that is, you know, very much the kind of uh, situation that Oppenheimer was in. Uh, he was given resources to to do this unchecked, uh, unexamined work, uh, and only after it was too late to put it all back in in the in the bottle, put the worms back in the can, the toothpaste in the tube. Before, <laughs> after it was too late to turn back, uh, then he had those questions finally started flooding in, and uh, the answers were you know, terrifying and devastating. Right. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if Walter Miller had Oppenheimer in mind. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, uh, Leibowitz was an, a Los Alamos uh, engineer. Right. So, yeah, for sure. Right. Yep. Uh, and, yep. Oh, yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah. And, the 
pseudo biblical narrative that we had, right? Of the description <laughs> of the uh, like in the world. days of Job. Yeah. Yes. That was so brilliant. I yeah. loved that. I read it like three times um, because you realize how it, it reminded me some of Paralander and our conversations about the space to, or the ransom trilogy um, and that we live at such a, a, such a charged time in history. And yet to us, it's just relatively mundane, right? You just yeah. like get up in the morning and there's it's every day. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but it's a very, myth a lot it's a very mythical kind of time like this uh and and that that you know narrative that story that just sounded so much like i thought maybe it was like from the book of enoch or something right like when i was (laughs) reading it i I thought i i was uh, i wondered when i first started reading it until i got to about the middle of it i was like wow this is original text um yeah and that if we were to have a nuclear war which was very, very on the forefront of people's minds at the time of Walter Miller and still today, um, that's what it would be like. It would be this mythical, like mythological level, mythopoetic experience um, that would be very vividly described with language like that. But to us, it feels like technology, right? Like even <laughs> even with even those of us who are believers, um, we see it as a scientific reality. But this right. book kind of forces us to see it for what I think it truly is, which is a spiritual war, right? Yeah. Um, and and the implications of that are far more profound than just the science of it. Yeah, I, I love too that. Uh, in that section, the repetition of name and the <laughs> and the monks, you know, Miller sort of plays it off uh, as a joke. The monks say, well, nobody's really sure who exactly name was, but like the 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 reader can understand uh, it's a form. And this is such a universal thing. It's like a, you know, any kind of form prayer in a prayer book. Uh, the place where you insert the name of the particular individual, sometimes just an italicized name is uh, was left there as the placeholder. Uh, and it's so, so possible for this to happen in any time uh, because this is a, a yeah, it is a, a, a mythic story. It's not a historical description of a particular moment really even anymore uh, in in within the frame of the novel, but also... I think in in reality, uh, but a a possibility for humans because of human nature in any age, right, right. Uh, so this is a temptation for insert name here. That's right. Yeah. Right. Well, and I mean, I loved that. I thought that was brilliant because once you figure that out, we have to put our own names there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that. Yeah, that's right. That ought to move us to. I mean, that's sobering. Yeah. So let's talk about the light. Last week, I hear you talked about objective correlatives without me, by the way. It was so it was accidental. It was like knocking the milk off the table or something. You know, there's just no way to undo it once it was done. But we really didn't intend to do it. Yeah, I don't know how I became somehow the close reads owner of objective correlatives. <laughs> but I am gonna, I'm here for it. Um. It felt wrong to talk about it without you. I will say that. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about it with me then. Um, Great. So is the light an objective correlative or a symbol? And what's the difference? First of all, let's have a literary Ooh. conversation, first of all, and then let's talk about the light itself. Great. I think you should answer the second question first, being the resident expert. Oh, I am. That's or, very true. Or owner. Yeah. Yeah. The owner of it. Yes. <laughs> um, although we just had a long conversation about how I shouldn't be so territorial about the knowledge <laughs> that I care about. So um yeah, as I was reading it, I can't help but have those kinds of, you know, thoughts of the the literary thoughts. I know we try not to yeah. be too pedantic and literary on the show, but, but it's, always, wondering, it's always like, happening. Is this a symbol or is this an yeah. objective correlative, right? Like, a, and why can't it be both? And certainly, I think maybe it is, but an yeah. objective correlative ten is something. Usually, it's an action on a, within within a uh, within a story uh, that kind right. of ha- carries the thematic weight. 
or mirrors the action um, and the and and the meaning of the action within the story. And you know, in the example uh, that is used um, by T.S. Eliot, our actual inventor of the term <laughs> objective objective correlative, um, is uh, when is Achilles' war cry at the gates right. of of Troy, right? And um and and that war cry is like just that war cry bears this weight of of Achilles personality his conflict his 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 psyche uh, and the action that he performs within the play it has all of his rage in it right and all of the weight of the the um the uh Greek war code that has torn this noble character um, from within himself and forced him to reckon with with all of this trauma and 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 weight of war, um, all held within this war cry. Right. So when he is crying, um, we like pretty much the whole Iliad is happening in that war cry. Right. And that's right. the objective correlative. And a symbol is a little different. It's usually an object that bears a lot of weight that extends past the story. Right. So when we see a, uh, the sun, for example, is a great, a great symbol, right. It has, um, in any story, uh, if there's like an emphasis on the sun or water or something like that, um, then that symbol uh, connects to other stories beyond just its own, but does a little bit of the function of an objective correlative. They overlap some. And I think that the arc light here does that same thing. Yes, I, I absolutely agree. Do you agree yep. with that? Yep. Yes. So what is it? that the arc light is like symbolic of what is it? What is, what does it do to the story? And I think it's symbolic of what light is often symbolic of uh, enlightenment in the figurative sense. Uh, the coming of the creation of the arc light is symbolic of the epical transition that we talked about earlier, the uh, beginning of an age of enlightenment, uh, both tech technologically and um, you know, maybe uh, societally. But then I think the arc light itself also uh, ends up being an objective correlative for what is happening in the book uh, as a whole, or at least in this part two, uh, in that uh, it's divisive. It's so bright that it also casts uh, shadows. Right. Uh, so it's not it's not an objective, uh, a, an objectively pure illumination. It's not like the sun coming and driving out all shadow. The shadows that this light casts are starker than the shadows cast by candlelight in the same space. It's harmful. <laughs> uh, like uh, the guy who's the monk whose job it had been to adjust the arc itself right. uh, at the end is in the infirmary uh, having his eyes treated because That's he's right. going blind. Uh, and then there's a little uh, Galileo right there for you. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, it's created without without reflection. No pun intended. <laughs> nice. Uh, the, no one asks whether they should do it, just whether they can yeah. do it, and then they do it. And then that effort is abandoned by its creator uh, in the end as having been futile or, or at least not worth the price that was paid, right? Cornhower is the one personally who brings Christ back out, the image of Christ, and puts it uh, back in the place that the arc light has supplanted, which seems to be the 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 drama of the arc light, the arc, the narrative arc of the arc light, nice. uh, seems to be the most explicit judgment that the book gives in this section upon uh, the pursuit of men like Fontadio. Right. Right. Yeah. It, the, the arc light is blinding and it takes a whole lot of monastic effort uh, to uh, uh, from the uh, is it postulants or novices that do it. Right. And yeah. they have to <laughs> continually labor to keep the light going. Um, and uh, for the use of the scholar who hasn't actually worked for it, right? He hasn't suffered for it. He's exerting no effort. He just gets to see knowledge by the light of it, right? right. Um, and the light and is he's blinding. A little, 
And he's a little bent out of shape when he first sees it because he didn't create it. He didn't do it. That's right. (laughs) Um, And yeah, the replacement, how the, how they, they, how they replace Christ with it. But then in the end, they put Christ back in his place and Cornhoer is offered um, the opportunity to go with Don Taddeo and pursue his scholarly and um, and technological efforts somewhere else. And he turns it down yeah. um, because he wants to be where he is. And your point about reflection is good. Um, I like the pun, um, even though it wasn't <laughs> intended, as you say. Um, <laughs> but um, I like that because... Again, it goes back to the earlier part of our conversation that when within the monastic context, knowledge for just the delight of it, like the creation of this arc light, just because you can, right? Um, as long as it's within the community, under the authority of the community, is a worthwhile endeavor. But then when yeah. they figure out that they can do it, then they ask, like, is this useful to the community? And then the answer is no, right? We have everything we need already. We know we could do it. It has been preserved. Um, but then, but it's time to set that aside because we have more important work to do or other work to do. But within the monastic life, there is a freedom to pursue something just for the sheer fun of it, for the delight, right? Yeah. Is this knowledge, can I put it into action? Um, but just a couple of weeks ago, I was at the uh, Circe conference, the um, uh, one of the regional conferences, and one of the talks given there by Greg Wilbur, um, he gave a great talk and he distinguished in his talk between fruitfulness and productivity in work, mm. meaningful mm-hmm. work, uh, and... Um, and just urged us, challenged us to to really think about that, that productivity and fruitfulness are not the same. They can yeah. be the same, but they but they're they don't they're not always. Um and I've just been thinking about that, dwelling on that a lot since then. Um and and I think that seems appropriate here when they realize like this this is a good thing that we did, but it's not really fruitful for our community, <laughs> right? Um and but it's a good thing to know that we can do this and that we can have mm-hmm. it. And if there we ever had a real use for it, we could we could resurrect it, right? Um, and do it again. And but that's where knowledge in community versus just kind of this individual uh progressive sense of I'll do it because I have to for just for um because I have this mind that's possible, right? It's like, you know, like we were so busy thinking, wondering if we could, we didn't stop to think if we should, like you said, um, very right. Jurassic Park. Um, but there's a lot more at stake for some of the other technology and knowledge that that yeah. comes from this turning point in history that Than or Thon Tadio started. And our last couple of minutes, I have two things I want to talk about. One is the poet. Um, and I kind of want to yeah. end on that since the section ends on that. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to just bring up maybe a more overarching um, question that's brought up in this section. Uh, What is Walter Miller saying here, in your opinion, Sean, about the compatibility of faith and reason? Do they belong together? Are they opposed to one another? Um, How do you see him kind of navigating this enduringly relevant question? Yeah, I I don't think he I don't think he sees them as incompatible at all. Mm-hmm. I think he does a pretty good job. He's very careful. I think at points to uh, demonstrate. I think maybe I said this earlier to demonstrate the the learning and the understanding of the monks. Uh, right. They may not have they may not be on the cutting edge the way that some of these fellows in the in the college uh, that Fontadio comes from are, uh, but they. Uh, they're not idiots by any means. Uh, they have made, and and Don Paolo even makes that uh, that case to Fontadio, right? That uh, the order was found uh, founded uh, on the prospect of uniting faith and reason, uh, but that where the fallacy comes in is when someone like Fontadio sort of twists that distinction to to make reason mean the un 
the unbridled pursuit of something through the application of reason. Uh, and I think that is uh, where the, the breakdown occurs. So right. it's uh, it's disingenuous to say uh, <clears throat> if you don't allow or if you don't countenance this unreflective, amoral kind of pursuit of mastery or power. And he he's, he says, Don Taddeo says several times, right, domination over the planet. Uh, if you don't countenance this, then you are you are making reason the slave of faith or you're pitting them against each other. Uh, when in reality, he's talking not about reason, but about a particular application of it. Right. Uh, and, I th- and I think uh, Miller uh, dramatizes that uh, corrective understanding of the relationship that faith and reason can have, which is very complimentary. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's pretty rare in a novel, right? Yeah. About these kinds of questions, um, just the conventional mind or the conventional, the, the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist would say, all people of faith are foolish, right? We don't, we don't believe in reason. We don't believe in science. We don't believe in progress or whatever. And then, so they, the spirit of the age tends to see reason divorced from faith as corrective to faith, right? Right. Whereas the monks are saying, no, faith is corrective to reason divorced from Mm -hmm. any kind of meaning-making mythos in the world or story. And, and then there's, that's, I I just think that's rare and very refreshing to read and all that perspective. Yeah. And that's what Don Paolo tries to give uh, to mm-hmm. Dontadio's credit uh he i think he comes with that very simplistic view of the monastic tradition and leaves with a far more sophisticated and comp- you know complicated and complementary one right um, but that that's one of the things that don paolo tries to give to him is uh the a, a symbolic understanding of the world right? that's why he gives him genesis right? uh right. to give him to give him a symbolic framework uh, uh, within which, or from in, from within which, to make sense of the rest of the world, right? Not not as a kind of uh, not to persuade him to to reject uh, reason and the pursuits of reason. Yeah, that's right. Um, and along with that, we also then have a more humanized as as per our discussion earlier, vision of Thontadio at the end too, by turning over uh, the drawings of the fortifications, which was such a beautiful part of the story. I loved that. So we do see that he is a man with uh, a a conscience and an understanding of Mm -hmm. the good um, and an honor within him. He did not just put knowledge above all, um, but he... He he acted with uh, a self-sacrificial ethic there. Yeah. Um, so they impacted one another. Okay. So um, one thing we didn't talk about, if we want to spend just a couple minutes on that, mm-hmm. is Benjamin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I, who's to say what's going on there? <laughs> uh, it, there are weird hints, and it's. It's vague and unclear at first for a while. Uh, David and I danced around this last week. Uh, seems like it's confirmed that he has, in fact, lived for 4,200 years. Uh, that maybe he lived and then died and then was brought back to life. He's definitely sort of the incarnation of the that old you know, trope of the wandering Jew mm. uh, who bears the suffering of his people. There's There are strange suggestions about his connection to... Leibowitz. Right. For a while, it seems like Miller is allowing you to think maybe this guy is Leibowitz. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this section, he explicitly, uh, I think anyway, that he explicitly uh, sort of separates himself from that. And now maybe that just means that, and he even says that Leibowitz converted to Christianity and became the founder of this monastic order. Maybe he died and was brought back to be the, the spirit of the wandering Jew to make to do penance for creating the the destructive means of the first apocalypse. That's a that's a complex guess that I really don't have a lot of grounds for. But he's a weird character. 
he does seem to serve the purpose at least of uh, representing a different kind of, uh, well, expectation. And he he is a representative of the messianic expectation. Uh, and he's also another voice that Miller then places in the story uh, who comes and definitively says, no, <laughs> this guy Fontadio is not uh, the salvation of the world. Uh, whatever else he might be, he's not that. Uh, but then uh, he disappears after making that pronouncement, and uh, uh, we don't see him again in, in this in this section, maybe that's, ever. That was my favorite moment because I loved that moment because yeah. that is the. I mean, Thontadio is the modern Messiah, right? Right. Like we look to the scientists, we look to the geniuses, we look to the technocrats uh, to build us something that will save us. Yeah. Make us, make us a better drug or come up with a better procedure or or a better weapon. Right. Yeah. That, that somehow technology is, uh, is destiny, right. And salvation. Um, And, and that is manifestly ludicrous. It's never worked ever. Although, as I said, I am thankful for modern medicine, right? Right. Um, But everything that we have ever made has corrupted us and we have corrupted. (laughs) Um, And, and that is, I mean, that that's obvious from anyone with a conscience and, and in a library card or access to the internet. Right. Um, Yeah, that's right. Who is generations have trod, more, have trod, right? have trod. Yes, exactly. Um, but and yet, and yet, we're continually walking into uh, banquet halls and gazing into the faces of Fontadio, wondering if he's going to save us. So this is the Messiah, right? Um, no. And and I just thought that moment—that is an objective correlative. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I loved that moment. I thought it was brilliant. Um, yeah, and I. Uh, I like that about the wandering Jew. And for a while, I did ask the question, like, is there a conflation here of the Jewish yeah. and the Catholic identities? But I think that Walter Miller is careful to separate them and that they are different traditions, but, and yet they are compatible. They are still, they are longing for the same thing, right? Yeah. Um, but they are different and each has its own identity in the, in the, in the novel and its own goodness in the novel. Yeah. Uh, but the question of the of Jewish identity belongs in a book that's titled A Canticle for Leibowitz and is about Catholic monks. It would be irresponsible to not address that, um, yeah. especially in the time period after World War II in which Walter Miller was writing. Right. So I was grateful to see that in the story. Mm-hmm. And I thought there was a lot of um, compassion and wisdom Um and in the relationship between Don Paolo and Benjamin. Yeah. Yeah. Especially Don Paolo's, uh, I mean, without, uh, he clearly respects Benjamin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet he tries to offer him the freedom to not, not feel the burden of, of his entire race. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You, you don't have to feel like you carry this alone there. You can be a part of something and still feel the distinction between what does he say a uh, nation and individual or, or something like that and that that maybe maybe uh cuts both ways there's a lot of freedom in that but then there's a lot of um embracing of personal personal responsibility too you have to act as yourself and for yourself in the world uh, and that is a kind of burden and duty uh, also right yeah so what about the poet Heidi, I wish you'd tell me all about the poet. <laughs> I know. I I I do too. I wish I could I wish I could swoop in with some kind of answer, but he's a very mysterious figure to me. Um yeah. and I think the book overtly connects him with a jester. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's true. A Fontadio at one point says, you know, I don't worry, I'm used to these kinds of guys. Uh, you know, uh, my uncle or whoever he is, uh, or cousin keeps several jesters in his in his court too. Yeah. But that final scene, right? Both yeah. the sections so far, both parts have ended with a death right. in the wilderness. 
um, and a violent death in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. But this was Mm -hmm. the death that the poet brought upon himself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, so the, the poet, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you're right to think of him in terms of the fool, uh, who is the truth teller. Uh, and there's, there's not, there's a lot of truth telling going on in the monastery, True, uh, but, but his, uh, at the banquet in particular is the least varnished, right? <laughs> uh, truth. And he gets in trouble for it. He also has, uh, he's, um, uh, he has an eye as a prop. Uh, so vision and clarity of vision and false vision versus true vision. Right? All those sorts of, uh, things are suggested there uh, or invited there. But then, yeah, I think uh, maybe he's kind of like us or maybe he's a kind of stand in even for the author. Uh, there's a way in which the fool, uh, the the truth teller can be aloof. From what's actually happening, uh, you can, I mean, think about, you know, so, uh, sensationalist bloggers today or something, right? Uh, you can, you can make a name for yourself telling, slinging hard truths, uh, and have no skin in the game. <laughs> right. Uh, in fact, it's easier to sling hard truths when you don't have skin in the game. And, uh, Miller gives us the scene finally where the poet, uh, commits to something. Right. right. He we we had last seen him flee at the at the mention of danger uh, or conflict. Uh, and even even at the moment of his death, he's determined to simply watch the conflict unfold. Uh, but he's moved by the inhumanity of of the act that he's watching. And he has to become uh, he enters into his humanity fully at that point and has to uh has to participate in the the conflict even if it's going to cost him his life right right yeah his um and his disembodied eye right now that's a very yeah um meaningful object in the story right it can see Mm -hmm. things um but it's disconnected it's a removable conscience that's right that's right um so yeah, he's complex and I, we're going to have to leave the episode with that gap because we have officially run out of time, but I don't yeah. know what to make of him completely. We'll, we'll have to ask David next yeah. week. Yeah. Well, let's ask yeah. him next, next time what he <laughs> thinks and you, you all listeners can discuss it amongst yourselves. Maybe yes, we'll please make do. that as our question of the week. Right. Oh, what yes, did you the make? question of the week. What did you make of the poet? Tell us your interpretations of the poet. What does he, what does he mean in the story? What is he, uh, how, what were your interpretations of this very, very mysterious character? Yeah, I like it. Um, all right. So that's our question of the week. Uh, and uh, over on the Substack, thank you. I just, you can't, mm-hmm. you can't mm-hmm. falter like that mm-hmm. on air. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I got it. You're doing I got great. it back. Thanks. Over on Substack, on Close Reach HQ, uh, we are the three of us, the Yumi and David, are discussing Kristen Lovren's daughter. And we actually didn't record this week because I was delayed on my flight home from New York. <laughs> uh, so a little inside coming. baseball for our listeners. So we're, we're trying to figure out another time this week that we can record so we can get you your podcast. So forgive me, listeners. Um <laughs> Uh, but it is coming. That's right. Uh, and we have lots of other great content over there, live discussions um, and uh, on poetry and movies. And we are we are just talking about everything. The talking world everything. of letters over there yeah. at Close Reads HQ. So if you want more of us, listeners, uh, please uh, check us out over at Close Reads HQ on Substack. Um, and you can join our secret society of Uber listeners. We want you over there. We're very involved with our community um, in any context, but specifically over on Close Reads HQ, we're creating lots of great content that deepens our conversations about books and bookish things. Uh, so we hope that you'll join us over there. Uh, and uh, anything else that we need to be promoting, Sean? Uh, you can come by and, uh, listen to me on the daily poem. That's right. Yep. Sean's holding down the fort on the daily poem and we're all really (laughs) grateful to him for that. 
Um, you're winning your rewards uh, on earth it, and in heaven. <laughs> it, it really, you know, it's just, you just get to read poem every day. It's like creating a daily poem habit, right. uh, which is like its own reward. Absolutely. Okay. I love that. Yeah. Virtue is always its own reward. You and Neagram <laughs> won you. Um, <laughs> is that what I am? Oh, finally. I Maybe. I know. I don't know. Um, all right. Well, that is all for this week. With that, for Sean Johnson and for the absent but still remembered David Kern, I'm Heidi White. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time and happy reading. 